You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. In the book of Ephesians, um, after today I'm planning on two more messages to finish out the entire book, all six chapters. So as I said last week, I think I counted out to 28 sermons in Ephesians. So we like to go slow because as you are seeing, there's a lot to explore. There's a lot to learn. Think of it this way. Every word in the Bible is there with intention. Right? This is truly God's word. And this is an errant word. His inspired word. Authoritative. We just can't go roughshod through scripture. It's okay to go slow and be patient. And see what God has. Well, today's sermon has several layers. And here's a metaphor for how I'm approaching this particular passage. Uh, Imagine a a birthday cake. Before you put the knife into the cake, you see kind of what's on top. You got the candles, you know. I turned 40, so you got, you know, the 4-0, just to remind me how old I am. Um, It says, happy birthday. The point is, what is on top of the cake is obvious. But after you cut into the cake and you kind of pull out a slice, you begin to see layers. Perhaps you got chocolate and another layer of vanilla. Today's message is is layered. At least that's the way I've thought of it. It's how I've approached it. Dean read the passage, and what instantly pops from the pages of Holy Scripture is the relationship between bondservants, and other translations say slaves, and masters. Like, that's just what immediately catches your mind. And you're just thinking, what does this have to do? What, how do we handle this text? What's God saying here? And this top layer is most prominent. But we will see there are other layers we need to talk about. These additional layers include spiritual slavery versus spiritual freedom. There's also a layer of biblical principles in this text that we could actually apply to our lives. So the moment you walk out of this building, you're going to make, you'll be able to make immediate application. That's kind of another layer. So we'll keep looking at these different layers throughout this message. But here's the big idea that I want to keep coming back to. When you are a slave to Christ, you have lasting freedom. When you are a slave to Christ, you have lasting freedom. Therefore, in all situations, at all times, think about all the situations you've ever been in. So in all situations, at all times, God calls his people to serve him and serve him alone because you are ultimately first a slave to Christ. So we will receive a taste from all these layers from from God's word, but I need help from the Holy Spirit, so I want to briefly pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll get into our text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. All This is all here for our good and for our instruction. And so, Lord, I, I plead for help. I'm just a needy beggar who needs help to preach your word well and accurately. Ultimately, Lord, may the sermon drive us back to the text, to this passage, to be conformed more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I trust that you are 
here and at work for our good and for the honor and glory of your magnificent name. Amen. All right. Before every Sunday, I always touch base with the person leading worship about the passage that I'm going to preach, preach on. And basically, I'm touching base with the worship leader saying, hey, here's some of the theological themes that are coming from Holy Scripture. And so we try to map on a little bit of what is sung with what we see in God's Word. So we see some, there's like a flow in every service. So at, least, at least that's what we tried to do. And I mentioned to Joe last Sunday that this passage might be the most challenging sermon for me to preach. The century was much more robust much more diverse and dynamic. Oftentimes you had grandparents there as well. I should mention that. It's hard to properly understand this passage without kind of knowing the context here. In particular, God is trying to help us see that if Christ is your Savior and Lord, then how you view your relationship with one another, with another person, has fundamentally changed because of the gospel. A husband and a wife view the relationship in light of Christ and the church. That was two weeks ago. Parents and children are for each other instead of against each other because of Christ. That was last week. And now masters and bondservants are seen as spiritual equals, even within the authority structure. While positionally the relationship has not changed, the nature and essence of the relationship has dramatically shifted. These relationships are transformed because because of the call on Christians from God. Here's the call. I already mentioned it. I'm going to repeat it again at the end. In all situations, in all times, all times, you are to serve God and God alone. You serve God. You see, a person's vertical relationship with God impacts the horizontal relationships. That's what's going on in all these household codes when we talk about you know, marriage and parenting and this bond-servant-master dynamic. The gospel's doing something to people. And it's sparking dramatic change in the heart. What is really fascinating about today's text is that Paul writes to a diverse group of people who are attending the same church. Just think about it. It makes sense. we got the parents and the kids. we got marriages in the church. Great. But now we have slaves and masters in the same church. They're all singing together. That's fascinating to me. He writes this letter, and by the way, it would have been read out loud to the church, and he lays out some of the most revolutionary ideas ever to be known in the first century. For example, the Stoics of the first century. Uh, Stoics are basically a group of philosophers. If the Stoics addressed this slave-master dynamic, it was always addressed from a negative perspective. It's like, oh, look at, look at them over there. That's how it was addressed by the Stoics. Paul's approach to the bond-servant-master relationship is a complete 180 from the prevailing sen- sentiments in his culture. Uh, pastor and theologian John Stott notes this about the great philosopher Aristotle. Again, one of the greatest philosophers of that time. Not necessarily a Stoic, but a smart dude who knew a lot of things. If you took one philosophy class at any point in your life, you read Aristotle. Stott says this, Aristotle could not contemplate a friendship between slave and slave owner. For he said, now he's quoting Aristotle, a slave is a living tool. Just a tool is an intimate slave. An animate slave, excuse me. Although he could at least concede that a slave is a, is, a, is a kind of possession with a soul. That's what Aristotle believed about slaves. Just a possession with a soul? 
a tool? Paul, and more significantly, God, says no. No. A slave or bondservant is not just a tool. A slave has dignity wrapped up in the Imago Dei, the image of God. A bondservant is considered an equal with the master before God. Could you imagine a bondservant and a master sitting in the same room, right next to each other perhaps, and hearing verse 9. Here's verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. And stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him, with God. That's remarkable. That is remarkable. It's hard for us to see because of our culture and our climate. And Paul was throwing stones and sticks at the prevailing sentiment and philosophy of the first century. Now, I'll draw out principles from this verse in a few minutes, but I want you to see, before I talk about the particulars of the bond-servant-master relationship, that Paul was not first interested in going after an institution, but he was interested in going after the heart. And I'll address the institutional thing in a moment, but he was, he's like, I'm going right for the heart here. Paul knew that lasting change begins with helping the Ephesian church See, that true transformation begins in the heart. You can tear down any wicked institution, such as slavery or indentured servitude, but unless the heart is transformed, and you t- another wicked institution will just replace the wicked institution you tried to get rid of. You've got to go after the heart. I mean, how you view another person in the church with disdain how do you do that if the other person has been adopted by God, just like you? How could you ever manipulate another person for personal gain if everyone else in the church is a beloved child of God? So like now, the master and the bondservant are both children of God. How, how do you look at that? I mean, the perspective has completely changed because of the gospel. When members of the Ephesian church looked around in the room at a church service, they did not first see a husband, wife, slave, master, school teacher, custodian, attorney, politician, medical doctor, or CEO. They first saw image bearers of God who've been saved by God's amazing, unmerited grace. Yes, amazing grace. We sing that this morning, and for good reason. That is what unites the church together, God's amazing grace. Each person would see the other people as a part of a spiritual family connected because they were all in Christ. Now, I don't need to remind you, we can go to Ephesians 1 and do that whole in Christ thing all over again. That's how we are united to one another. The physical and relational dynamics of the church can only be properly understood through the lens of the spiritual realities of what's going on in the church. On Friday, I was at Smoky Road in Waukee working on this sermon, and I was trying to wrap my mind around the massive implications of the gospel here in Ephesians 6. And the word revolution kept coming to my mind. Now, throughout history, we can read about many revolutions that have taken place that have resulted in massive change. The American Revolution fundamentally changed the future of America. The French Revolution did the same in France. And it occurred to me 
the gospel of Jesus does not seem revolutionary to us. We tend to hear the gospel along with all of its implications, and you know, sometimes we kind of take it for granted. But I promise you that a person in the first century who believed Jesus died for their sin, and that same person believed he rose from the dead, and that same person believed Jesus is the Son of God, and that, person, that same person believed that because of the gospel, there is equality within the authority structure of the home, well, this kind of faith would have been revolutionary in the first century. The revolution ushered in by the gospel does not stop with what a person believes, but it changes everything. Jesus, the Jews figured this out. Jesus did not come to upset governments and institutions. Right? That's what all the Jews thought. They, they had their own revolution they were thinking about. Right? Jesus came to turn the world upside down through the human heart. As human hearts conform to Christ, institutions will follow. Okay, so let's talk about the slavery or the term bond servants, right? Depending on your translation, you may see a different word. As I mentioned, the Greek word being translated is this word doulos. Uh, doulos can be translated as slave, as um, servant, or bond servant. So you got three options. The proper translation depends on the context. Actually, the same thing is going on with the word kurios in the Greek. Kurios means Lord, as in our Lord Jesus, but also can be translated as master. In our passage, both translations are appropriate. We see kurios translated as Lord and master. Again, context is determinative here. It seems we need to, need, need to know a little bit about what's going on in first, the first century Roman Empire to know what word we should be using, what's going to make sense here. The historical t- context can help us get to the bottom of what's going on. First, you need to know that the bondservant-master dynamic was vastly different than the chattel slavery in the American South in the 18th and 19th century, what we understand slavery to be, right? There were certainly similar abuses in the first century Greco-Roman culture, as with the American slave-holding South, but the two are not really equivalent. Now, I'm not justifying either context, but I'm simply trying to help us adjust our understanding. For example, it would have been computed that in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million, no, sorry. Yeah, 60 million slaves. 60 million. That's a lot. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. The number of bond servants or slaves does not make the institution right. The type of work being done does not make, the, does not make slavery right. Forcing a person to act against their will and conscience for personal gain is not acceptable. Also, slavery within the Roman Empire was not necessarily motivated by race. That's, how, that's what we think of, right? When we think of slavery, it's motivated by race, color of skin. Uh, the barbaric curse of ham idea did not exist as a means of discrimination. A Middle Eastern man could enslave another Middle Eastern man or woman. Economics and class were much more relevant factors for enslaving another person. Further, a slave was more like an indentured servant. I've already used that word, which is why the ESV uses the word bond servant. Indentured servitude is a form of labor in which a person is contracted to work for a specific number of years. Basically, it's like this. You're working off debt to one day become free. 
And some people wanted to become indentured servants because it was a better life. It was better than living on the streets. So as you can see, there's a complexity here. There's complexity to the households in the first century Roman Empire. Yes, forms of chattel, chattel slavery existed. And yes, bond servants existed. And yes, there were various forms of indentured servitude. Yes. So we need to be careful not to import our cultural understanding of slavery and place it on top of our text. There's way more going on than what initially meets the eye. So how do I interpret doulos, right? This word. When I'm referring to the Roman context, I will primarily use the word bondservant. When I talk about our relationship to Christ, I'm going to use the word slave. I think the term bondservant captures the essence of the first century Roman Roman culture. And the strength of the word slave captures a Christian's relationship to its Savior. If you read Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, and if you're anything like me, you're left wondering this. Why does not Paul condemn slavery, even in this nuanced form of slavery and servitude? Like, I asked that question. I'm reading this. I'm like, just call it out, Paul. Come on now. Why are you leaving me wondering here? Well, he points slaves and masters to Jesus. But there is no condemnation of slavery in this passage. So I need to ask the obvious question. Does the Bible speak out against slavery as we know it? It's obvious to me the Bible is against slavery, and the Bible acknowledges the past and present-day evils, requiring solutions that begin in the heart, as I've already said. Here's Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, he shall be put to death. He should be put to death. That's what God's word says. God is not playing games when we're talking about slavery here. How this was ever justified from a Christian perspective is beyond, beyond my mind. Here's Deuteronomy 24-7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So he shall purge the evil from your midst. God is not playing games when it comes to slavery. Early church theologian John Chrysostom said this, It is avarice, or evil, that brought about slavery. He's right. It is acquisitiveness, which is insatiable. This is not the original human condition. What John Chrysostom is saying is like, this is not how God designed it. This is not God's intention for humanity. It was never part of God's design for one person to be the overlord of another person and enforce that person to do things. And God is not just against slavery and human trafficking. I'm going to add that in, because that's modern-day slavery. But God says we're to care for strangers. Here's Leviticus 19. When a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall do no wrong to him. Now, it's not qualified what kind of stranger, what that stranger looks like, where that stranger is coming from. It's just a stranger. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. That person who may be totally different, speaking a different language, you're going to treat that person as if he's a part of your family. That doesn't sound like a God who's for slavery. It's the exact opposite. 
over and over and over and over again, God condemns slavery and he gives us instructions on how to love and care for those who are different, who are not a part of our life, who come into our life. Over and over, the Bible endorses love over the evil and wicked institutions of slavery. So yeah, God has something to say about the evils of slavery. Unfortunately, passages like Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, have been used to justify and normalize slavery, especially in the American South during the 18th and 19th centuries. Again, this cannot be overstated. Paul knows that the way to uproot evil is through the human heart. Paul keeps going after that, the human heart. Paul isn't dodging questions about slavery, right? We can go back to that question. Paul, why don't you... Why don't, you just, why don't you just condemn it right there? He's not, I don't think he's dodging the question. He doesn't talk around the edges. With the gospel of Jesus Christ at his disposal, he goes right for the heart. It's like, you know how I'm going to uproot these evil systems? Right here. Right here. And I know all this is quite the lead into our text, but I think you see that the context needed to come some explaining here. Now, here are, here are two principles from this passage. Now, we kind of got a better understanding of what, what the dynamic is with bondservant and master, with some of the historical context, which does help us understand what Paul is saying and why he's saying it. Now, let's talk about some principles. Principles from this passage, I got two of them, and then one precious theological truth that I'm going to end with. Uh, principles, now, by the way, I'm going to say this. By looking at these principles, I am not equating slavery or indentured servitude with our contemporary life. I want you to know this about biblical principles. They're actually timeless. So as they were applied in the first century, we can apply them today. Principles, especially biblical principles, transcend time, context, culture, and circumstances. That's why we're always looking for principles. So two principles. First, first one's going to be serve the Lord, not man. That's what we see in our text. The second one is rewards come from the Lord. Those are the two principles we're going to tease out. Now, here's the theological truth that I'll end with. God does not show partiality. He shows no partiality. So let's look at principles first. In and every situation, you first serve the Lord, not a human being. Here again, verses 5 to 7. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service or people-pleasing, but as bond servants, now I would prefer the word slave there, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So there are times when a change of perspective makes all the difference in the world. What Paul is saying is that before a person is a bond servant to an earthly master, he or she is first a slave to Christ. When you are first a slave to Christ, your motivation and aim in your circumstances completely changes. Your perspective changes. Like just think about your own workplace. If you first know that you are, you are a slave to Christ, does, does how you view your workplace change? Of course it does. Instead of trying to please the person who is in charge, verse 6, your goal is to please God. And God is pleased when you understand yourself as a slave to Christ. I mean, remember what I said all the way back in the first sermon on Ephesians. Paul said he was an apostle who was owned by Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's like, God owns me. That's what Paul said. He knows his life is not his own. And then in Ephesians 3, verse 1, Paul says he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
Now, you might be thinking to yourself, how can I be free and a slave at the same time? Like, I was thinking about the kind of that dynamic, because we use both of that kind of language. We're a slave to Christ, we're free, you know? What's going on here? We read this in Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So we've got to reconcile this. Yet, all throughout the book of Ephesians, we see Christians are owned by Christ, a prisoner of Christ, and a slave to Christ. So what's going on? All this seems like a paradox. Well, the real questions we need to answer are this. There's two questions. What or who are you ultimately enslaved to? What or who are you ultimately enslaved to? And what or who are you free from? The, the great philosopher, Bob Dylan, and I do count him as one of the greatest philosophers of all time, said in his hit song from 1979 entitled, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Here's what he said. Well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. Now, I wish I could sing that, but it'd get embarrassing quickly. Well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. So true. Everyone is serving something or someone, and everyone is looking to be set free from something or someone. Once again, here is early church father John Christostom. He gives us great insight into this passage. Serving Christ comes, he's quoting scripture here, from the heart and with goodwill. The goal is not merely to serve sincerely and do nothing wrong. It is rather to serve with one's might. Paul does not call servants simply to do what is barely due, but to serve abundantly and out of a door, not from necessity. Serve on principle and by choice, not under compulsion. If you serve freely in this way, you are not a slave. If your service comes from your free choice, from your goodwill, from the soul, and on account of Christ, you are not a slave. Here is what Christianity gets right, and this is what we see in our passage Christianity addresses the most fundamental questions about your existence. Yes, even in this passage about slaves and masters, some of the most fundamental questions about Christianity are being answered. How is a person enslaved and how is a person free? Christianity says being a slave to Christ sets you free from sin regardless of your circumstances. Regardless of your circumstances. The alternative is that you are enslaved to the world and your sin. Therefore, God is, God is free from you if you are enslaved to the world and sin. God's free from you. You know what? You will be judged and punished rightly for your sin. The Bible's view of freedom and slavery is greatly different from how the world quantifies freedom and slavery. The Bible certainly addresses the physical realities of slavery. We've already mentioned that in several passages, just outright condemning uh, chattel slavery as we know it and many forms of slavery that existed in the first century. But unless we address the bondage of sin, the physical realities of slavery will, posi- will, will persist. When you are a slave to Christ, you are in service to Christ and you are truly free. You are truly free. Let's make some application here. Think about this question. Where do you spend most of your time? All right. The place you spend most of the, your time tends to be the place you serve. 
you are a teacher, you serve 50 hours a week, you take your work home, right? You're serving there. If you are at home, you tend to spend the most time serving in the home. Now, here is the next question. Do you freely serve pursuing the will of God from your heart? Verse 6. Do you serve the one as one who is owned by Christ, serving for Christ? Is that your perspective in the place you are at most? That ultimately you are enslaved to Christ, serving Christ. Stay-at-home moms, you freely serve God as you serve your family. If you go to a place of employment, you first serve God as at work before your employer, right? Wherever you go, wherever you spend all that time, you're first serving God before your employer. As a matter of fact, you potentially become the greatest blessing to your employer when you first serve Christ. Why? Because the Christian work ethic is like unparalleled. Honesty, integrity, respect, love, and the list goes on. Christian virtues are reflected in your workplace because you are a slave to Christ. Again, what God is saying in our passage is not for you to necessarily find a new job or escape from your present situation. That might be the case. That might be the case. I wholly endorse the Underground Railroad where slaves were able to escape wickedness. A bondservant under the authority of an unjust master may need to run. You might be called to find a new job if you're being treated unfairly, but always be ready to evaluate your heart. Never forget you were first a slave to Christ. So, your first principle, regardless of your circumstances, is to serve God before anyone else. Here's the next principle. As you serve the Lord, you need to remember that ultimate rewards come from the Lord. Here's verse 8. You serve the Lord knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. I cannot, and you cannot, fully grasp the ugliness of slavery or, in some situations, indentured servitude. It would be hard to work all day and receive no reward and no no paycheck, right? It's hard. And I also know countless people today find themselves in situations, work situations, where they feel trapped. Working and serving is hard, but you need a paycheck. So you just feel compelled and forced to go to work. But if the first principle holds true, then the second principle is the natural outcome. If you are first a slave to Christ and you serve God, then you will be rewarded by God. Even though a person's present circumstances may seem unjust, and the labor a person puts in does not result in a just reward, God does not function on the same manner. Pastor Richard Koken, help us to see this principle from verse 8. He says this, Even though an earthly master may not notice or care what we do or be biased or miserly in how they reward us, our Lord sees everything, including the motives for doing it, and will delight to reward us in heaven. Whether we're slaves or masters, on a high salary or on a minimum wage, whatever our company position or social status, Christ will generously reward good works done for him with a bonus in heaven among, quote, the incomparable riches of his grace, Ephesians 2, verse 7. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. God sees all and will respond according to his immeasurable riches and grace. If you believe God will reward you, then you can be comfortable with like this idea, I share it to my kids all the time, delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. 
You have to be comfortable that God will reward you in his good timing, not yours. It's really hard for Americans. It's really hard for Americans to understand this idea that God will eventually reward you. It might not be right now. might not feel it right now, but there will be a day. Here's that sweeping generalization. In America, we just have a hard time with delayed gratification. We're so used to getting something the moment we want it or receive something that's predictable. For example, you know, I can order something on Amazon, and guess what? I got 48 hours. And if it's like longer than two days, you're just like, what's going on here? Was there a hurricane somewhere, you know, in Florida that it was coming from? We get all antsy. I mean, same thing with like paychecks. No one thinks about, am I going to get paid every two weeks or month or whatever it is? You just kind of take it for granted. It's just going to land in the account. None of this takes trust. However, it does take trust and faith to know God will reward you someday. That does take faith and trust. A ton. Either in this life or when you are with Jesus, you will be rewarded. And frankly, the greatest reward is Jesus. And anything beyond Jesus is just like icing on the cake. It really is. Now, before moving on to the theological truth, I need to mention the role of masters here. God has something to say to those who owned bond servants. What God says can apply to a person, perhaps, who's a boss of other people. So if you find yourself as a supervisor or a boss, I think there's some application and some principles you can pull out. Let's read verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him, with God. When Paul says, masters, do the same, he is referring back to what he said to bond servants. In particular, masters should not be people pleasers. They should, not, they should pursue the will of God. Masters must act righteously and fairly with others. Masters can know how they treat bond servants will be judged. How they treat bond servants could invoke heavenly rewards even. So if you find yourself in a place of authority, you also have a lot to consider here. Like, are you threatening other people within your sphere of influence, right? Or are you treating them with respect? That's important. It's important to God. Do you pursue fairness or personal gain? Are you allowing your Christian ethics to be your guide and governor for how you use the authority given to you by God? Like, if you are in charge of other people, the authority that you have is actually given to you by God. Therefore, how you wield that authority matters. Because here's the truth. There is a master in heaven who rules and reigns over the bondservant and the earthly master. We have a heavenly father that is at work in your place of employment. God is sovereign over the boss and God is sovereign over those who the boss is in charge of. We must always remember God is sovereign over all people, which leads to an extremely important theological truth. God does not show partiality. He shows no partiality. So what does this mean? God's dealing with his beloved children is always equitable and righteous. God does not evaluate one person based upon their social or economic status. God does not look down at a person's race or gender in a, in a way that is demeaning but the opposite is true. God is constantly showing affection and care. 
even in our passage this morning, what have we seen and what we've seen from the last two weeks? On this earth, there are levels of authority. God even ordains authority structures. He does. However, before God, the master and the bondservant are equals. Here's what it says in Galatians 3. It it applies so well to what we see here in Ephesians 6. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. You are one in Christ Jesus. Like, think about the diversity in this room. Right? Got people from Iowa and California and Minnesota and other places, Wisconsin. Different cultures, different upbringings, different faith traditions, different races. But we are all one in Christ. Now, can we celebrate that? I think so. I think so. As our Almighty Father looks down from heaven, only one distinguishing mark stands out. Only one distinguishing mark stands out. Those who are children of wrath and those who are children of God. We saw that earlier in Ephesians, this language of children of wrath. And then we also have children of God. Those two distinguishing marks of what God sees. If by faith you know Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on a cross for your sin and he rose from the dead to show death had no claim in his life, if you believe Jesus continues to rule and reign, if you believe Jesus is Lord and Master, then you are a child of God. God will reward you for your service. If you believe in these gospel truths, then you are on, if you do not believe in these gospel truths, then you are on a path of destruction where the wrath of God will be poured out upon your life because of sin. You are not free. If you are a child of wrath, you are not free. But you are in slavery by your sin. There will be no rewards for you because you serve the wrong master. And go back to our uh, prophet Bob Dylan, philosopher. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. For you, the way forward, if you're in this camp where you are a child of wrath, the way forward is to repent, profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and begin to walk in freedom. Begin to begin that journey of walking in freedom. In the last three plus weeks, I said that being a Christian is a distinct calling. Ephesians 5, verse 22, all the way to Today's passage, chapter 6, verse 9, has helped you see, I hope, how to rightly order the particulars in your life. Marriage, parenting, and now we see principles to live by, no matter the authority structure you find yourself in. So I'll end by summing up this sermon in just a few sentences. When you are a slave to Christ, you have lasting freedom. When you are a slave to Christ, you have lasting freedom. Therefore, in all situations, in all time, God calls his people, he calls you to serve him and serve him alone. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.